Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It looks like a nice day out there in Edmonton. Mm. Might try to get outside in the sun, get a little vitamin D. Fair sky. Yeah. So, Bruce, um, it's uh, the long, dark night of the Oilers' second off-season, back-to-back off-season, is really kicking in now. But we are making a commitment to Cult of Hockey uh, listeners, podcast listeners and viewers on YouTube, that we will be having a podcast at least once a week during this off-season. We've got a number of ideas that we're going to be digging into. We're going to be following the Oilers' prospects overseas, and we thanks for everyone who made suggestions on how we can watch those games and highlights, and we're we're continue to dig into this as our uh, limited technical ability and financial capability permits. And we are we are we are figuring this out. Uh, so, uh, but today we're going to take um, looks like Ken Holland's off season. Is pretty much over. There still could be some late moves. We've seen late moves in the past in recent years with Chris Russell signing, I think, in was that for 2016 October season? 2016, yeah. Uh, Riley Sheehan signing in September. Alex Chason coming in a PTO, uh, which was announced, I think, in late August or early September that year. And, and I would not at all be surprised if we see something similar to that, a player, there's still lots of good players who are unsigned, both defensemen and forwards. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the Oilers uh, make one or two more signings in that regard, either a PTO or even a contract, if if it's something particularly delicious. You know, we've heard, for instance, the Oilers had made a contract offer to a player like Dominic Cahoon, hmm. uh, who, you know, points per game, points per 60 at even strength was really high, like close to Taylor Hall. They had a Ryan Nugent, or close to Ryan Nugent Hopkins for the last two years. So there could be a, there could be something like that. And of course we'll be on the lookout for that, but every, you know, that's obvious, but we are going to right now just take a final kind of major look back at uh, Ken Holland's off season, what other people have said about it and what we think about it. But we'll start with uh, what everyone's talking about at Edmonton. And that's the uh, the uh, sad uh, death of Joey Moss, who's a an Edmonton icon and an Oilers icon. Um, I I met him once, Bruce, just once. I was mm-hmm. interviewing Barry Stafford, who's the, was the you know the oh, right. famous I remember that Oilers of interviews. They were really good. The Oilers way, because Barry was he knew more about the Oilers way. He knew as much about it as almost anyone. He was right on the inside of those great teams and Canada Cup teams. Uh, he had been involved in more championship teams, I think, than anyone on in hockey because he had been the trainer on all these different championship teams and uh, had seen it from the inside. Anyway, I interviewed Barry one day. We were at a coffee shop, and we probably were talking for two or three hours, and he brought Joey, and Joey just it was fascinating. Joey, he sat there, and he, Bruce, he didn't, Joey did not say a word the entire time. He was just completely uh, uh, content, sat there peacefully and listened. And uh, it was, you know, it, it was interesting um, to see to see to see him up close, and and it really, I would say, inscrutable. Like I, you know, I don't um, know what was going on inside him. 
um, or 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 anything other than that. I just it was just interesting. I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience personally being around someone with Down syndrome. I never don't know anyone personally uh, in my life that has uh, Down syndrome. But so it was interesting to be around him. Barry just loved the guy, and yeah. he's a very well loved figure in Edmonton. And the only yeah. other thing, you know, the biggest impression I have. The thing, you know, him singing that national anthem during the games is, it's such a moving thing to see someone so into it. And it's, and, it, and in the end, I think it's so moving that, uh, that our society has made these great strides and in including people with Down syndrome, finding meaningful, meaningful work for them and a meaningful life. And that's what Joey had. And he had it himself. It wasn't just us doing it for him. It was him doing it for us. So that's my thought. Yeah, yeah, I'll say. Uh, yeah, I've, I have some experience with uh, uh, folks with uh, with Down syndrome. I did some volunteer work way back in my youth. At uh, uh, when I worked at the bowling alley, we had a, a group of uh, people from Canadian Mental Health Association who came out for a weekly outing, and uh, some of us in the youth bowling council were uh, uh, were asked to to help out and i did willingly and i got to know and love these people that came on on a weekly basis and uh, uh, uh my wife taught at Glenrow school hospital and had lots of uh experience with uh uh kids with disabilities of you know different different types and of course down syndrome is one of the one of the uh, well-known relatively common ones and uh, Joey proved that it's very possible to uh, to make the most out of your, your life. I mean, he he did a better job of making the most out of his life than maybe anybody I know. You know, like he got a hundred percent out of what he had, near as I can tell. Uh, did a uh, you know uh, did did a uh, um, such a good job uh, as a young fellow working in a car wash that he uh, uh, impressed his uh, sister's boyfriend, a young fellow named Wayne Gretzky, uh, enough that uh, Wayne recommended him to Glenn Sather as uh, uh, someone who would be able to help out in the Oilers' locker room. And, of course, yesterday we heard from Wayne Gretzky, from Glenn Sather, from numerous of the players who inhabited that locker room, and also numerous players, star players, some of the greatest athletes the city has ever seen in both hockey and football, uh, all were willing and happy to speak about their thoughts and relationship with uh, with Joey yesterday. It was very inspiring to hear many, many hours of uh, radio coverage devoted fully to uh, to Joey Moss. Uh, it was a, you know, a, a terrific day of sports radio, frankly. I mean, it's a sad occasion, but it's a, a life well worth celebrating. And for all that Joey only lived to be 57 years old, he worked for the Oilers and the Eskimos for basically 35 years. So let's call it 70 years of service to this city's two uh, pr most prominent professional sports teams. I'm sorry, Edmonton Football Club. Uh, and the Edmonton Oilers, and he had, you know, just the top players like that. Uh, I heard interviews yesterday from uh, Matt Dunnigan, uh, from uh, from Mike Riley, uh, you know, the star uh, quarterbacks of Ricky Ray, star quarterbacks of the Edmonton teams over that time. And I think Joey was involved in nine championship teams 
exceptionally, he won the double in 1987 and that he worked for both the Oilers and Eskimos when both teams won the, their league championships in the same year. So this is uh, comparable in my mind to the phenomenal double once achieved by Claire Drake when he coached the uh, uh, University of Alberta Golden Bears to both the hockey and football national titles in the same academic year. Anyway, Joey's job obviously was different, but the fact that he crossed the, the you know the, between the two clubs and, and did work for both is you know exceptional in its own right but what's also exceptional you know is he worked was born lived his whole life stayed with the oilers stayed with the eskimos the entire time all the players that were interviewed yesterday not hey their playing career is is long over in most cases uh but they all got traded or moved on moved away from edmonton sometime during their career and as a fan who's always pined for that one guy, maybe it'll be Nuge, but that one guy that starts his career in Edmonton and just stays here and plays his entire career here. Well, we had that in Joey Moss. He, you know, he was like totally dedicated to the city and to those teams. And in the process, he was an advocate for uh, and an example for disabled kids. I mean, there was some wonderful stuff from a, a, a guy with Down syndrome who works in a, in a grocery store who said Joey was his hero, you know, his, his role model that, uh, that he, that he uh, fashioned himself after to some extent and, and you know, has found a good productive position, thing to do in his life. Or there was another one, just a delightful pair of tweets from this mom who had a Down syndrome baby and how she was struggling to, how to deal with, how to cope with that. And she found... Uh, uh, she looked up and found uh, Joey Moss, and he, he was, to her, the example of what kind of potential that her kid might have. So his reach was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the tweets that were pouring in from all over the continent, it wasn't just Edmonton, obviously the focal point is here, but anybody who knew the guy, it seems like they were they were effusive in their, in their praise and their, and their respect and love for the guy. Rest in peace, Joey Moss. Rest in peace, Joey Moss. So, Bruce, um, we'll start uh, the hockey segment. There was some, I kind of collected a lot of comments that were made uh, by mainly TSN and Sportsnet commentators about the Oilers offseason. And... Um, Let's, so we'll we'll start out first of all just by I'll just quickly go down the list of signings. I hope I didn't miss any. Okay, Tyson Berry one year three point seven five million. Mike Smith one year one point five million. Tyler Ennis one year one million. Kyle Turris two years one point six five million per. Yessi Puliyarvi two years one point one seven five million per. Alan Quine one year seven hundred fifty thousand. Seth Griffin. Two years, seven hundred and fifty thousand per. Adam Cracknell, one year, seven hundred thousand. Patrick Russell, one year, seven hundred thousand. And Anton Forsbury, uh, one year, seven hundred thousand. So, um, fairly long list. Yeah. Let's go uh, to the first comment. And Bruce, I should say they were mostly complimentary. So here's what Brian Lawton said. Former GM. For me, when I look at how teams have done, and I've been going through and seeing who made some really nice adjustments in the offseason that will uh, help them win more, 
I always compare it to what their ability was to spend as well. The Oilers didn't have a lot of money to spend. What they were able to accomplish, I would actually rank in the top third in terms of the position that they were starting from. So this isn't like a, you know, rave review. This is a very careful review from a very smart and careful commentator, I find, uh, Brian Lawton to be. But it's, uh, I think it's a fair comment. So he's, you know, there's lots of teams that made bigger splashes, like the Montreal Canadiens, for instance. They had all this money and they spent it all. Um, But the Oilers didn't have that much money. And Lawton saying of the, you know, just when you look at how much money they had, way it all, they're about in the top third about how you did. So that doesn't mean they're like they, they're the third most like then they're top third of even of improved teams. Right. But uh, he's rating Holland's work and saying it's kind of in the top third for NHL GMs. And um, what do you think about that? Well, the day before free agency opened, I, I wrote a post about what you know what their needs were and and what and I. Estimated they had eight million dollars AAV for 2021 to spend, and that they needed to find a left winger, a center, a right defenseman, and a goalie. And within about 30 hours of free agency opening, uh, Holland had invested 7.9 million in in Ennis, Turris, Barry, and Smith, and basically plugged all of those holes. Um, and decent value in terms of a couple of those guys took pay cuts. Uh, uh, Ennis got a raise, but not a huge raise based on you know the good season that he had. And uh, of course, you can add Paul Yarby to that list, who sort of came from a different pile, but that he was he was brought uh, brought back into the fold. And generally speaking, the contracts were were good value. And I mean, I think. You could probably look at a few other teams. If you looked in detail, you'd say, yeah, well, they, you know, same thing, limited budget and, and the players that were signed were kind of uh, uh, in a diff- difficult negotiating spot because of the dollars were so limited around the league. But I think Holland did pretty well uh, in that department in terms of getting uh, getting value for the $8 million that he had at his disposal. Uh, and then uh, of the depth guys, uh, the key to me is uh, Anton Forsberg, and the fact that they, you know, they got a legitimate number three goalie who's got NHL experience, who's been nibbling around the edges for years, and has been consistently excellent at the AHL level. So he solves one problem at least, and possibly uh, uh, another one if it turns out that he's needed to play in the NHL. You know, at least they got a legitimate alternative. I like that uh, Keith Gretzky was snooping around the AHL all last year. Uh, as his primary job. Mm-hmm. And I have a sense, Bruce, that some of these signings that he's made, including For- Forsberg and, or Forsberry and uh, Quine, um, might turn out to be pretty damn good signings. I mean, Quine is an outstanding scorer. He's not like a one-point-a-game guy at the AHL level. He's like a 1.2-point-per-game guy at the AHL level. And... Um, and also that, like they they signed Ryan uh, Stanton, I think is that his name, Stanton, mm-hmm, the to an AHL deal. AHL yeah. deal, hell of a defenseman at the AHL level that will really help that team. But um, listen, I think there's as good a, there's almost as good a chance that Forsberg will help the Oilers next year as Smith. 
Like, I don't know how Smith's going to do, and I think he's a bit injury-prone. He'd easily go out. But Forsberg's as, as good a bat, I think, at this point in his career as Mike Smith, honestly, to be a, a decent NHL goalie. And I like that the Oilers have made two bets, essentially. Smith doesn't work out. Hey, we've got this other guy. And they really do this year. Now, they had that going into last year with Starrett. Starrett was injured, of course. But I think Forsberg's a little bit better bet in that he's played more NHL games than more Shane zero, Starrett yeah. ever did. He had made that jump. Shane Starrett had been fantastic yeah, he was in the promising, NHL but, but in 2018-19. Yeah, so, yeah, I like that. I like that signing. Let's, here's Brian Burke. Uh, former GM as well, talking to on orders now to Bob Stoffer, And he says, I use the MacGyver analogy. I used to watch MacGyver. He always found a solution. When you've got a cap issues, there's two courses of action you can follow. You can do nothing or you can use a little bit of chicken wire and chewing gum and cobble together a solution. And that's what Kenny has done. He used small chips, short-term deals, small deals. I love tourists coming in the three-hole. He's taken the small amount of cap room he had and maximized it. Let's go on to Adam Gretz. Adam Gretz for NBC Sports. I always have a little chuckle when I read his name. Adam Gretz is one of the uh, many kind of, uh, I don't know where he's based, but he's he's often pretty critical of the orders. Uh, You know, there's a number of, of writers out there, you know, Wyshynski, Ryan Lambert, uh, some guys in Toronto uh, who love to take runs at the Oilers. And uh, Adam's a little bit in that category. So let's see what he had to say. He said, letting Andreas Athanasiu walk after giving up two second round picks for him at the table at the trade deadline makes the trade look quite dubious in hindsight. Not making any change to the goalie situation is also a significant risk, especially given how deep the free agent and trade market was this offseason. But overall, the offseason has been solid when it comes to the outside additions. Chris Russell is a flawed player, but a $1.25 million extension isn't terrible. And while I do not think this could ever be the determining factor in, in signing someone, it has often been used as a weak defense of a signing. It does give them another defender to leave exposed in next year's expansion draft. Beyond that, the additions of Kyle Turris and Barry were very smart, low-risk additions. It is still a very top-heavy roster, but they have made some smart moves while avoiding the type of crippling mistakes that defined so many of their previous off-seasons. That is progress. And Bruce, I have to go answer the door. I'm going to let you talk about what uh, right. Burke and Gretz said. Okay. Well, the uh, some people identified the 3C position as being the Oilers' biggest uh, area of, of need. And in in uh, acquiring Kyle Turris at, at sort of a discount rate, I mean, uh, Nashville bought him out just two years into a six-year, $6 million contract, the type of crippling contract that the Oilers... Uh, needed to avoid at all costs, and really they didn't have the cap room even to even uh, be able to do it. Uh, but he does check some boxes in terms of being a right shot center, an offensive center that can uh, maybe push a little bit of uh, uh, goal production uh, from the bottom six, and you know a little bit of versatility that he's built up over his career. Uh, the other area of need was uh, for a, a puck-moving defenseman on the back end, uh, specifically, ideally, a right shot uh, puck-moving defenseman. 
and to land Tyson Barry on a one-year deal, show-me deal, you know, it doesn't have long-term implications at uh, just $3.75 million, uh, which is not nothing, but it's a significant reduction. I think he was $5.5 million on his previous contract, so he took a haircut. Uh, Tourist took a big haircut. Uh, like her, not like the signing of Mike Smith, uh, at minimum, Holland negotiated a haircut. He took a significant pay cut, even as he was coming off a season where he was arguably the Oilers' one or at least number one A goaltender who played a little more than half the time, got a little more than half their wins, had a, you know, had a significantly, you know, contribution to the season. And some will argue that Smith is the wrong guy, but um, the brain trust of the Oilers was comfortable enough with him that once once they were able to land Tyson Barry uh, with the amount of money they had remaining, they were able to bring back Mike Smith. I mean, all the other goalies that we're talking about that were available in the free agent trade market, they all cost a lot more than $1.5 million or even $2 million if Smith makes all of his bonuses. And I mean, guys like Thomas Grice and, and uh, Corey Crawford and so on were making more like double or more uh, what Mike Smith is, is uh, going to make. And, and the uh, uh, the other alternative would be to pick someone off the discard pile like Aaron Dell for a lesser amount, but, uh, uh, you know, more, more a generic goalie. Whereas Mike Smith, the management knows the dynamics within the team and, and, and the, and the, the, uh, the human factor. And and how how Mike Smith interacts with his team and and uh, motivates it to some extent and obviously they value that and whether or not that value gets repaid by a, by a decent season remains to be seen but as you said David the uh, they now have an alternative and Smith's contract is low enough that should he tank and you know suddenly fall off well wouldn't be that sudden but should he fall off the cliff and play like he did in December for any length of time. They have a real option where they could send him down, call up Anton Forsberg, and who I think would probably be a serviceable backup goalie, and they would actually save $375,000 off the cap by doing that. And it wouldn't be quite as efficient as just simply signing Forsberg and plugging him into the position, but they've given them themselves the option and the, the very, I think, likelihood that Smith will come in and play the season uh, but they've set the table that I think the split in the goaltending duties will be different in uh, 2021 with uh, Mikko Koskinen assuming the the uh, number one, clear number one role. So anyway, that's the variety of, of problems that he's faced and, and he's found, I think, reasonably cost-efficient solutions for those those major needs. And given the, you know, the relatively small amount of uh, of uh, cap space he had available, uh, I think more good than bad. What were Barry, like Barry and Turris between them earned about 12 million last year, right? Yeah, 6 million and 5.5 for so, uh, Turris <clears throat> and Barry. And this year, 1.65 and 3.7. So literally less than half of what they made last year. It's kind of, it really is pretty good work, actually. I mean, I know everyone's upset about Mike Smith or many people are upset about Mike Smith and 
we're going to hear about that ad nauseum. I'm sure every time Smith has a bad game, and we'll probably Tommy ourselves have. Yeah, we'll probably ourselves have a word choice word because we're, we'll be hypocritical in the moment. Um, but um, I just there, you know, just really hit, you know, you summed it up very well, Bruce, with the the four four things they had to fill, and they filled every one of them, and, and they filled every one of them in kind of a way that I think is was pretty. Was, you know, the Barry thing is fantastic, obviously, to get a top four D-man. That's really hard to get a top four D-man. He is that. He's a second-pairing offensive D-man, right? Like, just no doubt about it. And then, um, you know, Turris, I know some people aren't, you know, thrilled with his work. His play in Nashville wasn't great, but he's young enough to have a bounce back. As long as there's no injury issue there, and we don't know that, whether, whether there was or wasn't, like what's going right. on. But, you know, every reasonable expectation. And Ennis and Smith... Ennis is Ennis to me is a fantastic signing, just like it was a fantastic trade at the deadline. But the the cherry on top is Pulia Yarvi, yeah. who could be, you know, other than I think there's a guy Minnesota signed a guy, their draft pick. I think his name is Kirill Kaprizov, if I'm not mistaken, who's been a really strong forward in the KHL for for uh, for a, a long time now, uh, and he's about 24, 25, and other than him. He's probably Pulley is probably the most exciting player. Maybe I'm wrong, but coming over from Europe, um, who could make an impact in the NHL this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a player who's got NHL experience, has had some hard knocks, but is dominating in a Europe in a European league right now. A bit more wisdom, a bit more knowledge. I just think you know the, what that is just the that move on top of those other four. Kind of puts Holland at a, you know, you you could bump him up to the like from from a B minus B B plus to an A minus or an A because of the Pulley RV deal. I mean, I think the rest of the work is pretty you know very solid. But so here's let's go with the one dissenting note. Yeah. Um, Frank Saravalli mm-hmm. uh, from TSN, and he said, here's what he said. I'll read you his full quote. Uh, the number that stood out to me was the 869 save percentage for those goalies, Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen, had in that short playoff run. That's unacceptable. That's the reason why they lost to the Blackhawks and nothing else. It didn't have to do with the production from Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl or leadership or anything else related to that. It simply came down to goaltending. You can't win with those kinds of numbers. And to bring those guys back, even understanding the cap constraints this team had doesn't really inspire confidence. Not in an offseason in which more goaltenders were available than seemingly ever before. There was a real opportunity for Ken Holland to upgrade in net, even find a long-term starter, and that didn't happen. I think... What's that? I think the Oilers are looking at more of the same instead of a chance to really improve this season. There's just a little thing that popped up there on Skype for a second. I don't know what that was. Um, so, Bruce, that's pretty harsh criticism. And I think, like, Frank's a really strong reporter. I, I strongly disagree with his analysis of the NHL, of the Oilers in the playoffs this year. And we'll get into that. I do think he makes... I, I, I think he makes an interesting point, though, about the priority... Um, which is a fair point of should you have put all your money into a goalie or into essentially right. a top four D man? They put most of it towards Barry. So let's say you had $4 million to spend, maybe five if you really pushed it. Should you have done all that on the goalie? 
right. or on the D-man. And I think what it came down to is they tried to do it on the goalie. They tried to get put a, go all in on Markstrom, and he turned them down. So it, presumably Frank would have been happy if the Oilers had signed Markstrom, Ennis, um, not Barry. Um, Patrick Russell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Million-dollar players. If you spent $5 million on Leonard and you had $8 million for four players, the math, simple math is you have a million dollars each for the other three key Yeah, so, you, so you're counting on Evan Bouchard, essentially, then, this year to be Tyson, would do what Tyson Barry's going to do, which that's isn't fair. a terrible bet. Like, that's not the, the worst bet. So I think Frank's comment has some, that, that critique actually has some merit. But the fact is that the, the goalie turned them down. And the, the other fact is when you ask Oiler fans, at least right now, are you glad that that goalie turned them down? Um, you know, what it would have taken to get Markstrom was more than $6 million a year, it turns out. Do, do we really, would we have been happy? I don't think, I think Oiler fans would have been, I, this Oiler fan would have been really unhappy and skeptical if they had outbid Calgary on Markstrom. And um, so, I've, whereas I think, like Frank's making a point there, in the real world, that option wasn't that available. And I don't see, like, offering 4 or $5 million for Corey Crawford or Grice. That doesn't right. really... I, I'm much more happy with the smaller bet on Forsberg and Smith, honestly, than than, than a five, 4 or $5 million, three, four, $5 million bet on Crawford or Grice, like option B. Mrazic. Mrazic. Mm-hmm. That didn't... I, I didn't find that too tempting either. So if I had to pick over Frank's option, like what Frank's idea was, I, I take his point. But I'd, I'd, I'm glad that the, you know, I like the way it turned out. And I would I prefer the way it turned out than, than the spending that would have had to gone on in the end to sign some of these really top goalies because I think teams overpaid. They paid, they paid full dollar, it seemed like. I mean, and I guess Vegas, they got a decent uh, uh, price when they extended Robin Leonard, who never yeah. did reach the UFA market, but they paid him five million for five years. So I mean, that's a pretty substantial sum. And you know, and that was the best of those contracts. The Oilers have sunk four point five million dollars into Mikko Koskinen for the next two years, and last year he largely delivered. And I think going forward, as if he's going to be your number one, given the restrictions of the of the payroll situation. You know, is 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 a reasonable alternative, and I guess those seems like many people who hate Mike Smith are not going to be happy no matter what. But uh, you know, overall, I mean, Smith had uh, he didn't have the worst negotiating position, and he, as I mentioned, he took a significant uh, well, I hate to say haircut, Mike Smith, in the same sentence, but he he, he took a significant cut in pay uh, to to return and and. To come back and presumably at least challenge again for the number one position, and he does bring some uh, uh, some attributes that I think are are good for the team. And I mean, his performance on the ice is going to trump everything else. And it could be that you know, two months into the season, we're all crying in our beer. But uh, so to, so Bruce to buttress his point, Frank's mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. of trying to say that you had to go for the goal. He used this example of the playoffs. Right. That being the only, really, he's saying that he, in his own words, that's the only thing that went wrong was the goaltending. What do you think of that notion? Well, a lot of teams play in the playoffs with one goalie. Uh, I mean, the orders, I mean, they could have used Koskinen for the whole four games, I guess. I mean, the fact is neither goalie really 
came through with a with a compelling performance. Smith was disastrous in the half game that he did play, uh, and Koskinen didn't knock it out of the park. And it was a short series, and you know they they didn't get a bounce in game three, and in game four, uh, Crawford played great and, and you know stole the game for Chicago, and that was that. They were done, and so. Uh, those playoffs, I mean, they were played under such bizarre circumstances. And there was enough failures uh, among the Oilers team outside of the blue paint. I mean, it wasn't just the goalies. I think the defense had a tough time in the series, and some of the forwards were, were good, and some of the forwards weren't that good at all. Uh, I mean, there's lots of, lots of blame to go around. I mean, uh, I know this one guy that's always blaming the coach for breaking up the, the dynamite line, for example. Uh, actually, more than one, and I mean, there, there, it didn't go well. But overall, do you look back at 2019-20 and say that was a bad, disappointing, failed season for the Oilers, or do you say, well, the team made some steps and uh, some of the moves they made last year worked out, and this year they're fine-tuning on that, and hopefully, the, some of the moves they made this summer will also work out. Yeah, I, I think, I think Frank's just like the second. Like, if you want to say Holland should have prioritized goalie and really got that done and he didn't get that done so his off season's a bit of a failure i think that's a fair comment i i just uh, uh, whether you know the, the the idea that the only reason the owners lost in the playoffs i just i i don't think frank needed to make that point to buttress his his lead into this i mean i'm just going to quickly go down the list of why the owners lost in the playoffs and it's a long list. You're not okay, going to be able to do it that quickly, David. <laughs> I, I will do it. I'm going to do it in 60 seconds. Okay. First, Tippett breaks up the NHL's best line, breaks up the best line and doesn't use them until the final moments of the series. He breaks up that line. He starts Mike Smith over Mika Koskinen net in the first game, even though Koskinen's the better goalie. Um, we, we saw weak to atrocious uh, defending and lots of miscues from their top four, all of their top four D-men. Nurse, Clefbaum, Larson, Ethan Bear, and Chris Russell. We saw a lack of defensive proficiency from two star players, Dreisaitl and McDavid. We saw a lack of toughness, intensity, and effectiveness from role players like Cassian and Shan. We the Oilers goaltenders were definitely outplayed in the first and the fourth games by Chicago's Corey Crawford. The Oilers got a lot of very bad bounces in that series, and there were some iffy calls by the referees. And finally, just as a, a like the Oilers have a problem, which Alan May pointed out, in terms of their defensive defenseman's ability to move the puck, uh, get the puck out of there, get the puck out of their zones quickly, and that was exposed in that series by the Blackhawks. So those are the reasons that the Oilers lost in the playoffs, and I think there it was a you know it's multi it's not a single variant it's a multi variant, and all of them um, contributed to some extent. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, if you want to blame the goalie for you know. A uh, point shot getting through and being tipped by a guy who's completely uncovered right in front of the net. Uh, go ahead. If you want to blame the goalie for a point shot that's uncovered that deflects in off of your own player right in front of the net, go ahead. But there's more to those goals against than just the goaltending. I'm sorry. I mean, or the wraparound that the wraparound on Koskinen in Game Four that Chris Russell put in off his stick. I mean, those were three. Like there's. 
I don't know how many tip were, were tipped in by Oilers defensemen and Chicago players, but it's three off of Chris Russell, and he and yeah. many people identified him as the best Oilers defenseman in the series. And he offered nothing offensively. Like Chris Russell was good, def- had his moments when he wasn't tipping the puck in his night. He was strong <laughs> defensively, but uh, he, he's he he was a weak puck mover, Bruce, and that and oh, that that lack of puck moving from him and Larson and Benning really came came out. And Clefbaum wasn't moving the puck well. That was a real problem the whole series, and they needed to address that. And I think they have. They're you know they'll have Caleb Jones and they'll have Barry in the lineup next year, and they might even have Evan Bouchard as the year goes along, and they might even have Broberg as the year goes along. So we'll see how that goes. Let's uh, since I mentioned Broberg, Bruce, let's just finish up with um, Keith Gretzky was interviewed on Oilers Now, mm-hmm. and um, he talked about. Broberg at uh, he was asked about Broberg at the Oilers play in camp in July and how he impressed everyone. And as you'll recall, based on the play in, which fans didn't couldn't see where they weren't allowed in the building, but uh, reporters were, and Mark Spector uh, suddenly was saying Broberg's the Oilers' best prospect, and and uh, that that upset a lot of people uh, at the time. It, it it seems though that that is what Oilers management now is thinking like that that's the strong sense I'm getting like they like Bouchard but they really like Broberg and we're starting to see clips of Broberg from the Swedish league that are knocking everybody's socks off so that position doesn't suddenly doesn't seem so controversial anymore and uh, here's what uh, Gretzky Keith Gretzky said about Broberg at the Oilers camp you know he's an offensive guy that can skate his skating is off the charts he's a little bit fearless he's confident I don't want to say it's a cockiness thing to him, but he's confident with the puck. He knows what his strengths are, and it's his skating. Bruce, um, and what we've seen in the clips from the Swedish League, you know, frankly, and this is like way too, this is way off the charts in terms of like where he might end up, but he looks like a young Paul Coffey the way he's moving the puck. He's just flying up the ice with incredible amount of power, and then, and then Darnell Nurse is also really good at this, flying up the ice with the puck. But then Broberg's making a nice play at the end of it often. Like he's taking the puck to the net or he's making a pass. And um, so I, I'm not saying, you know, obviously Paul Coffey's a Hall of Fame player, one of the, the, the greatest rushing defensemen. He and Bobby are the two greatest rushing defensemen who ever played. Obviously, I'm not saying that, that Broberg's in that category. It's just like, what, it's just... I, it, when I saw it, that's what flashed in my head. So that's all I'm saying. It's just rem- reminiscent of a Paul Coffey rush, is what I'm saying. But that's what well, it reminded me of. If you asked if he was the best potential puck rusher the Oilers have had since Paul Coffey, then, you know, that's that's a legitimate uh, question. I, I don't want to put the, the Paul Coffey burden on the young fellow, but uh, I, I can tell you what, he can skate, and uh, I... Right from the very first game of the Halinka Gretzky tournament that was held in Edmonton in 2018, uh, when I saw Sweden take out Slovakia, and he was outstanding in that game, and two other games that uh, that I saw against Canada in that tournament, uh, very noticeable just for his sheer athleticism. Like he's kind of all over the place, and you never know where you're going to where he's going to turn up. Right, he might be left defense, or he might be on right wing, or you know, but uh, he, he's just one of these. Uh, uh, I call them shinny players, you know, guys that just sort of dominate in the area that they happen to be at the time. 
and he's going to have to learn some some uh, some more discipline in his game. But I mean, this is what happens with 19-year-old defensemen. You know, they're going to take some work. Uh, he's he's showing early in the Swedish league season has been very very promising. Uh, I have noticed uh, in the last couple of games a downtick in his ice time. He was getting over 20 minutes a game for a, a number of games in a row. And then he had a couple of games down around 16 minutes. And then his last game, he was on for three goals a game. So, you know, we're going to see how steady can he keep up that early play or is this, you know, sort of a, 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 a you know, an energy burst followed by some downtime. So hopefully he can turn around this last, you know, couple of games pretty quick. But... Uh, so far, so promising from, uh, from what we've seen of him. And now we have to remember, uh, Evan Bouchard is also putting up pretty impressive results, but he's a league lower than is Philip Broberg. And he's also a year and a half older than is Philip Broberg. So it may well be that Broberg has surpassed uh, Bouchard on the Oilers' internal list of who is their top prospect and on the back end. He... Uh... He's averaging 1940 a game overall, and as you say, that's it's got some really high and low minute totals in there. Uh, in his what is it, 10 games that he's played, um, they have two veteran guys that they're going with. I think in their right. top pairing now, and and I think one of them might have been hurt earlier in the year when he when Broberg got those heaviest heaviest minutes. Uh, their top minute muncher has only played eight games, not 10 games. So I wonder about that's maybe why Broberg started out with so much ice time in the initially, um, but he does seem to be pretty firmly ensconced in the top four this year. Hopefully he'll stay there and and get about 18, 18 19 minutes a game. That would be that would be fantastic because he got about fourteen fifteen last year. So if he can step up and get the next level of ice time, um, Dmitry Samarukov is also um, getting a lot of uh, ice time. Wow. And uh, playing well, he's he's been he's played 19 games, Bruce, and he's been on the ice for 17 even strength goals for and just four against. Now that's on a very good team, and that kind of on ice stat can be misleading. Often it is. That's still pretty encouraging, and uh, he's got seven points. Um, he's he's also getting second pairing minute, minutes on his team. Although in the last five games, he was the on ice leader in four out of the five games Bob Stoffer was saying. So Samarukov had had a, just had a spectacular junior season, major junior mm-hmm. season in 2018-19. And then last year he struggled in Bakersfield. Now, some people have said on Twitter um, that he didn't get choice minutes. He didn't, he wanted to play on the right side and the owners wanted to play on the left side. This is from uh, Joseph, uh, J, at, at Joseph JK, who's a pretty sharp observer. Uh, he was saying Samarukov didn't get exactly the treatment he would have liked, but you know that's that's hockey too. You got to roll with the punches and make yep. the most of it. And Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones both had inauspicious rookie season, the rookie mm-hmm. seasons in the AHL. So um, it's a tough league to play in the yeah. AHL, and uh, it's but it's fantastic to see Samarukov take off. And Low Tide, I think, was recently writing. I think wrote at the Athletic that it's time to think of the Oilers having three top defensive prospects with the play of Samarukov in the KHL it's time to mm-hmm. think that way that's a completely fair oh. comment based on Samar- the entirety of Samarukov's career the orders are really loaded it's 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 thrilling honestly to have uh Jones and Bear breaking in at the NHL level right now 
um, you know, coupled with, um, uh, you know, some pretty decent veteran players in Nurse, Barry, Larson, Clefbaum, if he's healthy, Russell, you know, so they've already got Jones and Bear breaking in. And then they have these three guys. We haven't had this kind of uh, young talent breaking into the Oilers on defense since the early 1980s, since that time when, when, you know, and that was this whole other time. You can't really compare anything to it because the players there turned out so well, mainly because they all played partly in part because they were, you know, playing with Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player who ever lived. But um, this is, you know, they had Huddy then, they had uh, obviously Coffee and Kevin Lowe. Um, right. They had some pretty good young players then breaking in, Risto Siltanen, who didn't pan out for the, for the Oilers. Uh, but this is a this is an extremely talented group, so I'm 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 hyped. I'm hyping and I'm hyped. Mauricio Siltman, he did pan out, but just he didn't stay here very long, right? He didn't had, pan out in Edmonton, but in, he had in 60, the NHL he did. He had a sixty point season here. Yeah, that's he, true. He's one of two defensemen in the history of the Edmonton Oilers with a sixty point season. The other one being Paul Coffey, who did it something like six times. And topped out at 138, but uh, Risto had seasons of 63 and 53, I think it was points, and then he got traded for Ken Linsman. Like that was a fairly high-profile trade, and Ken Linsman helped the Oilers, and he got traded for Mike Krushelniski, who helped the Oilers. Like these, you know, these were. Uh, uh, it's not like they 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 spit the bit and and, and coughed the guy up for no return. They got they got good return for him, and he, he was a good player, and he stayed a good player in Hartford uh, after that trade, uh, Risto Siltman. But uh, you're right, they had, they had four uh, good young defensemen. Ultimately, Charlie Huddy got the job that Risto Siltman maybe had been angling for, and, and Lowe and Coffey, obviously, were completely solid on the left side. And, uh, I mean... The Oilers could only hope that they're anywhere close to having three D men of that quality, but uh, the fact is they do have three real good young D. And I mean, Samarkov at age 21, as of now, you know, well into the season, basically 20 games into the season, top plus defenseman in the KHL. And I mean, obviously part of that is team teammates and so on. But uh, four goals against. I mean, it's pretty obvious that he's uh, uh, he's not getting caved. Let's put it that way. Like. Plus minus doesn't tell us everything, but it sure gives a general indication of a guy that's, you know, out of his depth. Clearly he's not as a, essentially a rookie in the KHL, which is a step up from the AHL and a significant one. And, and behind the top prospects, the owners have a bunch of defensemen like Philip Berglund, Mike Kesselring, Phil Kemp, William Logason. In other eras of the Oilers, like, the Logason camp, camp, they would be like the top prospects for the Oilers. Like uh, you wouldn't have those very elite prospects for the Oilers. Like the, the, that would be the best group. But, you know, that's a pretty good second group of defensemen. Like in terms of finding some bottom pairing guys, some bottom pairing defensemen uh, who are going to be solid depth defensemen. And they're going to need them because they're not going to be able to afford everybody. And this is right. going to be painful in years to come. They're not going to be able to afford everybody, which is why I'm so glad they didn't sign Markstrom because uh, I think that would have been this, you know, that really would have impacted their ability to keep some of these players, but um, they're going to be able to plug in a lot of holes, Bruce. I think they've got a lot of depth there and it's, and it's a real important step for this organization in terms of competing in the NHL, which they haven't done for so long. 
Well, this is where signing the short-term contracts is a good thing. You know, if they if they had signed Markstrom, that would have closed the door for any other goalie to make the team for the foreseeable future, at least two years. Uh, and by signing Tyson Barry for one year, not seven years, uh, they, you know, Evan Bouchard has his road blocked for now, but that's a temporary thing. For in a year's time, that might change. Barry might pr- price himself out. He might, you know, not work out or whatever. Uh, but Bouchard potentially has a fresh slate in a year's time. They might say, oh, we got the guy we want, and he's right within our organization on an entry-level contract. So, so uh, we don't need you anymore, Tyson Berry. Thanks for your service. You know, there's lots of different ways it can turn out. But what it doesn't do is plug up the, the, uh, the depth chart and the payroll with, uh, you know, long-term commitments. we got enough of those uh, Oilers that are still paying for from the past. Uh, guys that are here, guys that are no longer here, guys that are, you know, bought out or salary retention or so on, you know, the dead cap space. I mean, they, they have to avoid that. And I think that's, uh, going back to our original topic, that was uh, uh, the one upshot of what Ken Holland did this summer is everything, one or two years, everything. Yeah, the only thing that wasn't that was the Markstrom deal that he reportedly offered, and um, so I just hope that the Oilers are are uh, are leery about these big long term deals. Like there was very few handed out this summer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to see Nuge, for instance, on a five year deal, mm-hmm. and um, that's what I would prefer. And this this is the NHL that they're they're living in now. They should and they should Holland should should uh, I hope he recognizes that. I hope the everybody does and the owners don't go all in on players on these really long deals um, like they did with Lucic. And just to just to go back to the contracts that Holland signed, I mean, we talked about the off-season ones. How about the one he signed on January 15th? <clears throat> Caleb Jones, two years, $850,000 average annual value. Now that has a, a, a huge potential of being a value contract as early as right away as soon as they start playing. Uh, at that price, to have you know a player that promising who you know he he made the NHL last year and I think it's pretty clear he's on the team. If he plays third pairing minutes, that's a good contract. If he is in fact capable of stepping into the top four, and he's certainly going to get the chance to do that, I think with Clefbaum's absence. If he if he does that and succeeds at that price, uh, it's a hit it out of the park value contract. And so there, you know, there's ultimately that's where you get value is by developing players within your own team. And that's where the Oilers have been, frankly, a miserable fail for the last long number of years. And hopefully the change is there between the guys drafted during the Peter Shirelli era and now being developed during the Ken Holland era. Uh, there's reasonable hope that there's uh uh, you know, there's going to be a pipeline of uh, affordable uh, young players who, you know, are going to be able to contribute to a successful team. You wrote a post on whether Jones can be in the top four. And mm. I think it's interesting. I don't know necessarily if the owners are going to have a top four this year. Because mm-hmm. when you look at their most likely pairings, mm-hmm. um, Nurse and Bear are likely to stay together. Yep. Russell and Barry seem like really good fits. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell on his left side, Barry on his right, the defensive defenseman with the, you know, the more offensive risky puck mover. And then Larson and Jones, same idea. Um, righty lefty combination. There's, 
in some ways, I think Bear and Nurse are obviously the top pairing. Yep. But then these two other pairings, it's almost like they're the same on a like at Two even a strength. Yeah, they're just gonna be they're gonna be used interchangeably, and maybe if one's playing better one game, they'll get more ice time, and then the other in the in the third period kind of thing. But I could see them. Jones and Larson could be really good, but so could Barry and Russell. And I don't see a heck of a lot of difference between them, which is kind of nice. Like the Oilers, have, I, I I think they have a really strong, um, not really strong. They have a strong six demon that they can rely on I, this year. I'm not, uh, um, I'm not worried about that heading into the season. And then with Bouchard and Broberg in the wings and Lagesson, if things go wrong and they need an injection of talent, there's an injury or two even in training camp. Just gets kind of exciting then in a way. Like I don't want to be excited by someone getting injured and not being able to play. But if you if you're filling in with Bouchard or Broberg, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of that's kind of encouraging that you have that kind of depth. Well, last year's injury to Adam Larson in the first period of Game One actually opened the door for Ethan Bear. Exactly. And it wound up you know wound up being one of those uh, uh, blessing in disguise uh, or certainly silver lining type of uh, situations. Uh, I will suggest to you that the pairings aren't cast in stone. And one idea I have is that the Oilers might go with a 2A, 2B uh, pairings where they have different roles, where they, they actually team up Caleb Jones and Tyson Berry in a more offensive role and then uh, put Larson and Russell in more of the defensive shutdown, first penalty kill style of role. And I think back to the... Last time the Oilers had a, had a really strong defense in 2008-09, and their top pairing Gray was you know sort of the two big money guys that they had. Their second pairing, Tom Gilbert and Dennis Grubeshkov, were both good skating, puck moving guys. Neither of them renowned to be a strong defensive player, and then they paired up uh, Laddie Smead and Steve Steos on the third pairing. So two more defensive oriented players together. Two more, and it's not unique to the Oilers, you see this on, on lots of teams where they have a pairing of two pretty mobile guys and they try and deploy them not against the very top players of the other team, but in offensive situations, whether the you know, zone starts or who the matchups are, when they put them out, you know, in, in, in the game and so on. And I think that's an option that, uh, that Dave Tippett may well uh, I like that, investigate. Bruce. I hadn't, hadn't even thought of that, but, um, I like that a lot, and uh, you just imagine Barry and Jones with a, out there with the dynamite line, Lion. or <laughs> you know, in the offensive end, the creativity of those five players in the offensive end, keeping the puck in and making a play. Wow, and with McDavid as well, right? You know, moving right. the puck up the ice with McDavid, it, you know, um, that's also pretty exciting. So yeah, you sold me. Like that's not a bad idea, right there. That would be um, that. I'm sure that they'll try different things. Obviously, they always do. But um, I, and then I would see Jones and Barry getting a bit more ice time with Larson and Russell getting kind of really the defensive zone face-offs. Maybe I don't know, but uh, you know certainly in the tough minutes. Maybe uh, uh, maybe Barry can fill the old Grebeshkov role of being ninety-five percent good player and five percent secret agent for the other team, as our friend Tom Barrett <laughs> used, to, used to say. About, about I hate to say that joke worked better with a Russian because you know uh, our long yes, history, our long history with the Russians. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Dennis Grebeshkov. 
Mm-hmm. Boy, his career crashed fast. He must have got hurt. Eh? He must like that's yeah, just what it is. He yeah. did. Yeah. He he took a he took a wicked shot to the uh, Matt Hendricks area, that uh, that wound up. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, is he the guy who lost the testicle? Anyway, it was a it was a real tough one, and I, I'm not sure he bounced back real strong after that. Just injury is such a factor, eh? Just yeah. and we see this with Clefbaum now. Like, you yeah. know, a month. A month and a half ago, everyone was saying that's one of the best contracts in the NHL, and you you know you sign this, and then now it's like, oh my, poor guy. You know, he, yeah. it's not just it just seems like not just a, a hockey issue with Clefbaum, but his, his whole life ahead of him. You know, facing chronic injury in his shoulder, and mm-hmm. this is reality though for lots of hockey players. Oh sure, it's a tough lots, game. Yeah, lots lots of young players. You know, they they look like a million dollars. I remember a young D man named Doug Lynch. And he looked like just a can't miss prospect, but played for Red Deer Rebels, and they were, and they wound up trading with part of the package that brought Chris Pronger here. Yeah. And I thought, you know, they've given up a mighty fine prospect there, but he'd done some kind of damage to his wrist or something, and he just never got over it. And you know, he just never made it at all. Like it happened before, you know, so early in his uh, developmental stage that you know he just was never able to make the step. And, you know, that, he's just one example of far, far too many guys that have just been derailed by serious injury in their developmental stage. So that's why it's nice to have three or four guys as opposed to being relying on just one that, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is the bright star of your future. Having, having that sort of redundancy of, of excellent defense prospects, like I'd be, I'd be willing to bet almost real money at least one of those guys is going to turn out to be a you know a, a legitimately good NHL defenseman. Whereas if you had just one guy and he got hurt, then where are you? Yeah, so Doug Lynch goes from 36 points in 74 games in his first AHL season, which is really good, right? It's your first AHL season, 36 points, 76 games, to 14 points in 74 games in his season. So I wonder what happened. Uh, in the meantime and in between time it uh yeah so uh, hopefully oscar clefbaum is going to be okay like you just you just never yeah he's a pretty important player to be uh facing these kind of you know potentially career altering uh physical challenges at such a relatively young age when he should really just be rounding into his full prime well bruce let's let's leave it there for today thanks for talking Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. R.I.P. Joey. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. Oh, just having trouble shutting this down. Here we go. I'll pull it up.